Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 64, Sleep Restriction. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. If you truly want freedom from insomnia, you may need to add in some restrictions. In this week's episode, we'll take a closer look at sleep restriction therapy, how it differs from sleep deprivation, and new evidence on how it can help you sleep better. Back in episode 16, I introduced some of the behavioral techniques used to treat insomnia, some of which is based on this Pavlovian response to tightly associate the environment of the bedroom in general, and the bed more specifically, with the act of sleeping. One of the most effective ways to do this is with a technique called sleep restriction therapy, discussed again in episode 44 on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Sleep restriction therapy is definitively not about restricting sleep duration, but rather about restricting the use of bed to just sleeping. What ends up being eliminated in sleep restriction therapy is therefore not sleep, but unnecessary and often problematic time awake spent in the bed. Later in the episode, we'll take a look at some of the demonstrated benefits of sleep restriction therapy, including a new study demonstrating a plausible mechanism of enhancing process S, the homeostatic drive of sleep pressure we keep talking about. Sleep deprivation, on the other hand, does intentionally limit actual duration of sleep, restricting the quantity of sleep itself, in stark contrast to restricting the extra wake time spent in bed as part of sleep restriction therapy. Sleep deprivation is associated with a whole host of nasty, which we first discussed back in the bonus episode on the value of sleep. Sleep deprivation is associated with an increased risk of death. Adults who regularly achieve sleep durations outside the recommended 7-9 hours in bed range have higher risk, and those getting less than 6 and especially less than 5 hours a night have substantial risk for death. In fact, a 2020 study from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey of nearly 8,000 respondents found that regularly getting 6 hours or less of sleep each day was associated with a 35% lower odds of having ideal cardiovascular health compared to those regularly achieving 7-9 to hours in bed. Ideal cardiovascular health here is really just being in the normal range on a number of factors, including blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, diet, smoking status, weight, and physical activity. So the less sleep someone achieved, the more sleep-deprived someone is, the farther they are from normal ranges of basic cardiovascular health metrics. And since cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in the Western world, it is likely that sleep deprivation increases the risk of death partly through this effect of steering individuals away from normal blood pressure, away from normal cholesterol, away from normal blood sugar, toward a positive smoking status, away from normal weight, 
away from normal levels of physical activity and away from normal diet. Speaking of diet, sleep deprivation and not sleep restriction is associated with several dietary changes. Sleep deprivation is associated with a significant accumulation of reactive oxygen species in the gut, causing oxidative stress, which may be one of the major causes of death in animals that are sleep-deprived. Interestingly, use of antioxidants, dietary or otherwise, seem to eliminate this risk for death in animal models of sleep deprivation, indicating that this oxidative stress in the gut has some prime importance. One small study demonstrated that just two nights of sleep deprivation induce subtle but significant shifts in the gut microbiome, a shift which may in part have to do with this increase in oxidative stress shown in other animal models of sleep deprivation. fMRI studies have shown that sleep deprivation increases reactivity to images of food. When subjects are slightly sleep-deprived, they had more activity in the brain region of the amygdala, the emotional reaction center of the brain. And when subjects were able to achieve adequate sleep duration, the amygdala quieted down and wasn't nearly as reactive when shown images of food, indicating that our emotional reaction to food is heavily dependent on whether we are well-rested versus sleep-deprived. This has enormous implications for the whole phenomena of emotional eating as a maladaptive coping strategy to stress. This data suggests, though it's not something they looked at specifically, but it suggests a mediating role of sleep duration in emotional eating, and that achieving adequate sleep duration, avoiding sleep deprivation, may play a part in helping individuals overcome emotional eating, eating to feel better, eating to cope with stress, or eating to calm down. If the amygdala is less reactive when we see food on a full tank of sleep, perhaps emotionally driven behavior like emotional eating may be less likely to occur, something I think certainly deserves to be looked at more closely. A separate 2014 study of healthy young adults demonstrated that after a night of sleep deprivation, subjects were significantly more impulsive than when they got eight and a half hours of sleep. But this impulsivity was only in response to food cues. In fact, there was no increase in impulsivity at all in relation to any non-food items. So when we are sleep deprived, food in particular may trigger us to more strongly experience emotions, as well as increase the chances we'll behave impulsively. One 2013 study of healthy young men in their 20s found that a single night of total sleep deprivation increased the hunger hormone ghrelin by 13%, increased self-reported hunger, and they ate portion sizes 14% larger, and chose 16% larger snacks in the morning than when they got a full 8 hours of sleep. So from these last three studies, we understand that in the context of sleep deprivation, seeing food makes us more emotional, makes us behave more impulsively, all the while feeling hungrier causing us to consume larger portions at mealtime and snack in between meals compared to adequate sleep duration. How is that going to play out? Well, children who are sleep-deprived consume more of their calories from carbohydrates and consume fewer heart-healthy fats compared to children achieving adequate sleep duration in one 2017 study. So we're not just emotionally impulsive while being hungrier and eating more. What we eat is also influenced by sleep deprivation and that emotional impulsive eating tends not to be more kale and grilled salmon. But thankfully, extending sleep for those who are habitually sleep-deprived has been shown to improve mood and energy, reduce daytime sleepiness, and reduce cravings for sweet and savory snacks among those trying to lose weight, with several other studies demonstrating that a return to normal sleep duration is associated with weight loss and improved glucose metabolism. So to put this diet and sleep deprivation story together, when we achieve less than the recommended duration of sleep, our brains are not just more emotionally reactive. The amygdala is not the seat of joy and friendliness and emotional wellness, but rather the seat of fear, anger, anxiety. So sleep deprivation not just increases activity in the region of the brain of negative emotion, 
we behave more impulsively. We feel hunger and we eat more. And this impulsive, negative, emotional state of mind drives us to eat more unhealthy carbs and unhealthy fats. On the flip side, when going from sleep-deprived back to adequate sleep duration, negative emotions are improved. Our hunger specifically for less than healthy carbs and fats is reduced. And this change in dietary behavior caused by restoration of normal sleep duration leads to improved processing of sugars and weight loss. If these dietary impacts were not enough, we also know that sleep deprivation strongly influences our immunity. A 2012 study looked at healthy midlife adults getting their vaccine for hepatitis B and underwent sleep tracking with actigraphy, a validated objective assessment of sleep duration we discussed back in episode 38. The authors found that regardless of age, sex, body mass index, and response to the first of the three doses of the vaccine, that shorter sleep duration was associated with a lower antibody response to the second and third doses of the vaccine. And short sleep duration was also associated with a lower likelihood of being clinically protected from hepatitis B six months after the final dose. Subjective sleep quality did not have any influence on the vaccine response in this study. So sleep deprivation leads to lower immunity, but subjective sleep quality has no impact. A different study in 2003 found that individuals who had just a single night of sleep deprivation immediately following vaccination for hepatitis A benefited from only half of the antibody levels four weeks later compared to individuals who got a full night of sleep immediately following the vaccine. Another 2021 study looked at self-reported sleep time in the influenza vaccine. Subjects tracked their sleep with a written sleep diary for two weeks and received the flu vaccine on day three. Shorter sleep time was associated with significantly lower antibody levels compared to normal sleep duration, both one month later and four months after the vaccine was administered. Looking at sleep duration across the two weeks more closely, the authors found that more sleep deprivation on the two nights prior to the vaccine were the main drivers of the lower antibody levels, with the sleep duration each of the 10 days following vaccination not significantly impacting antibody levels. Subjective sleep quality, again, had no impact on antibody levels. In the era of COVID-19 vaccines and boosters and who knows what's to come, clearly sleep deprivation is going to play an incredible role in immune response, both immediate and months later. Sleep deprivation makes vaccines less effective either before or after getting the vaccine, to say nothing of chronic sleep deprivation, with lower antibody levels in the short term and the long term, and a lower likelihood that a full vaccination series will actually leave you protected. It's the sleep deprivation that matters, regardless of subjective sleep quality. So clearly, sleep deprivation is bad for you, as we can see just from these two examples of eating habits and immunity, with many more far-reaching implications we don't need to go into now. So if you've been struggling with your sleep, and your doctor suggests sleep restriction therapy, he or she is definitively not trying to ruin your waistline or make you catch a cold. Sleep deprivation, bad. Sleep restriction, good. So what does sleep restriction therapy actually involve? Basically, sleep restriction involves limiting your time in bed to just a little longer than your actual sleep duration. So this means getting a baseline assessment. Before any intervention, how long do you spend in bed? And out of that, how much time are you actually sleeping? We do some simple math, divide the sleep time by the time in bed. And this quotient gives us the sleep efficiency. How effectively are you utilizing your time in the bed for sleeping? We've discussed over and over how important sleep efficiency can be, that interventions to improve sleep efficiency have all sorts of downstream benefits on other areas of sleep quality. Like as discussed in episode 57, that improvements in sleep efficiency can improve dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep. That equation is simply time asleep in the bed divided by time asleep plus time awake in the bed. Mathematically, without doing anything at all to sleep time, you can improve sleep efficiency simply by reducing awake time in bed 
And that's what sleep restriction is all about. So for example, if you're getting only six hours of sleep per night, and it's taken you 10 hours in bed to squeak that out, your sleep efficiency is six divided by 10 or 60%, which is pretty poor. A normal sleep efficiency is about 90% or higher. So for a normal sleeper spending seven and a half hours in bed, we expect, it is totally normal, to be awake about 45 minutes in bed. That includes time when you first get into bed before you fall asleep, as well as any awakenings that may occur across the night. So in this example of getting six hours of sleep from 10 hours in bed for a sleep efficiency of 60%, sleep restriction therapy would target some of those extra, useless, frustrating four hours of wake time spent in bed every night. And while you might get slightly different times from different providers, a simple way to do it is just by adding 30 minutes to the baseline established total sleep time as the new targeted time in bed. In this example, the new time in bed would be six hours of current total sleep time plus 30 minutes, or six and a half hours of time in bed. Without changing your sleep time at all, you just boosted sleep efficiency from 60% up to 92%. It probably won't happen like magic on the very first night, but your sleep need the minimum duration of nightly sleep your body needs to function okay, will try to fill whatever opportunity you give it. And if you give it an opportunity that's too wide, your sleep is stretched too thin trying to fill it, creating lots of holes and gaps we call wakefulness. But by matching your sleep time with a more appropriate sleep opportunity, your body pretty quickly learns to fill that opportunity efficiently. And this can have all sorts of positive impact. And once sleep efficiency improves to normal or near normal, The time in bed is gradually extended, typically by 15 minutes at a time, no sooner than once a week. Because barely getting by is not enough. Sleep health is not squeezing out the bare minimum to survive. It entails getting that normal duration of sleep. And since a lot of people suffering with insomnia may not be getting all the Zs their bodies deserve, eventually we got to add more sleep time, but only after sleep efficiency has improved. So in this example of six hours of sleep, once that sleep efficiency jumped to 92%, the next target for time in bed would be six and a half hours plus 15 minutes, or six hours and 45 minutes. If after a week or so, the sleep efficiency again surpassed 85 or 90%, another 15 minutes of time in bed would be added for the next week. Whereas if sleep efficiency remained less than 85%, the same time in bed is held until that sleep efficiency improves. And where this extended time in bed is added matters too. It's added to the going to bed time, not the wake up time. As discussed in episode 60 and multiple times before, consistent wake-up time is key to improve your process C. That is, to maintain your circadian rhythm, the most important thing to do is to wake up at the same time every day. So if you're going to spend additional time in bed, that additional time is added at night by getting into bed 15 minutes earlier and not by sleeping in 15 minutes later. This way, time in bed is extended without interfering with the circadian rhythm. Now, there are some caveats for individuals reporting extremely low sleep durations, and time in bed is generally never recommended less than five hours, and there may be some special considerations for individuals with bipolar disorder or epilepsy. So remember, this is just an explanation of the intervention, not a prescription for you to follow without any personal guidance. So please check with your providers first before trying any of this yourself to make sure that you are personally safe and a good candidate for sleep restriction. But if sleep restriction therapy has been recommended for you, and you're skeptical, or worried, or just confused about it, this episode may add some context for you regarding sleep restriction and its improvements of insomnia. A January 2022 article in the journal Sleep hints at a reasonable mechanism for this improvement. In this study, 56 young and middle-aged adults with diagnosed insomnia were randomized to either sleep restriction therapy or a control they called time-in-bed regularization. 
basically a prescribed set time to get into and out of bed every day at the same time, but not based on sleep duration or efficiency as in the recommendations for sleep restriction. By the end of the four weeks of intervention, the sleep restriction group was achieving the same sleep duration as the control group, but by spending a little over an hour less in bed overall compared to the controls. The same sleep duration achieved in less time? That's sleep restriction therapy. The authors were trying to assess how this might be working. They found that, bottom line, sleep restriction seems to work by increasing sleep pressure and by decreasing arousal. Sleep pressure, as you've heard before, is also known as process S, the homeostatic sleep drive. We've talked about this a lot, most recently in episode 60 on feeling tired but wired. They measured this with questionnaires on sleepiness, with vigilance testing, and with a spectral analysis of sleep EEG, brain waves recorded during sleep. How deep was their deep sleep? And how minimal were the more wakeful brain waves? And as we talked about in episode 60, insomnia, both trouble falling asleep initially and staying asleep, is often the result of being over-aroused at the wrong times. It's actually good to be aroused at 10 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon. But 10 at night and 2 in the morning? That's a recipe for insomnia. So increasing the pressure to sleep, feeling sleepy at the right time when you want to be getting into bed and not feeling overly aroused, wired if you will, that is exactly the kind of therapeutic response we want in the treatment of insomnia. And that's what they saw in the study of sleep restriction therapy. And not only that, but the kind of sleep the subjects were able to achieve was also better. Less light sleep, more deep sleep, and deeper deep sleep. Plus fewer wakeful frequencies of brainwaves. Fewer wakeful knocks on sleep's door when catching those Zs. What else does sleep restriction therapy do? A 2014 review summarizes the research done to date at that time. The take-home message is that sleep restriction therapy by itself is an effective standalone treatment for the management of chronic insomnia. The methodologies of all the different studies were quite varied with variations in the implementation of sleep restriction therapy, so some definitive conclusions could not be reached. However, there were significant improvements in the time it takes to fall asleep in the first place, significant reductions in the time spent awake after initially falling asleep, called wake-after-sleep onset or WASO, and improvements in sleep efficiency. Total sleep time also improved with sleep restriction. That's not an oxymoron. Sleep restriction was found to actually increase the total amount of time people were sleeping. Now, it wasn't a whole lot. On average in this review, it was around 15 minutes more sleep total after sleep restriction. But that's accomplished with getting about one hour less time in bed. After sleep restriction, subjects experienced about 40 fewer minutes awake after initially falling asleep. Or put another way, 40 fewer minutes of WASO, wake after sleep onset. So one hour less wake time in bed, plus 15 or so extra minutes of sleep? What does that do to sleep efficiency? No surprise, sleep efficiency jumped, about 15% or so on average across the studies. So this review summarized all the studies that demonstrated sleep restriction in and of itself, with no other intervention, is effective for treating insomnia. Shortening the time it takes to fall asleep. Reducing wakefulness after falling asleep. Improving sleep efficiency and improving total sleep time. But sleep restriction therapy is just one component of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI. In episode 43, we reviewed a lot of the evidence showing how powerful CBTI is at defeating insomnia. And in episode 44, we summarized the other components of CBTI. This includes the other portion of the B of CBTI, with stimulus control rounding out the behavioral portion. CBTI also involves cognitive and relaxation techniques, and reinforcing appropriate sleep hygiene, which we discussed across the first 16 episodes or so. So to summarize, sleep restriction is not sleep deprivation. Sleep restriction is a tactic to reduce problematic wake time in bed. We restrict the use of the bed to just a little bit more than the actual sleep duration. 
Sleep deprivation, on the other hand, does involve cutting out sleep time. And sleep deprivation is just terrible for your well-being. In this episode, we discuss just a couple impacts of sleep and immunity. Sleep deprivation makes it more likely we'll cope with stress maladaptively by emotionally eating. It triggers more negative emotions, makes us more impulsive in response to food, makes us hungrier and consume more than we would otherwise, and specifically consume more unhealthy foods like carbs and unhealthy fats. Conversely, going from a sleep-deprived state to feeling well-rested is associated with better metabolism and weight loss. Sleep deprivation also impairs our immune system. Being sleep-deprived either immediately before or immediately after a vaccine makes the vaccine less effective, lower antibodies by as much as 50%, and lower likelihood of being protected from infection, all thanks to sleep deprivation, regardless of how good or bad the subjective sleep quality was. Sleep restriction seems to work by enhancing process S, our homeostatic sleep drive, the pressure we need to sleep. With sleep restriction, we feel tired at the right times and less aroused at the right times. Sleep restriction shortens the time it takes to fall asleep, reduces extra time spent awake after initially falling asleep, improves sleep efficiency, and increases the total amount of sleep we get, contrary to the confusion caused by its name. Sleep restriction is effective all by itself but it's typically one strategy used in part of a wider treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, the gold standard intervention for the management of chronic insomnia. If you haven't already, go check out wellrestedmd.com day, where you can get a special download, a totally free cheat sheet. In this Day of the Life of the Well-Rested download, you'll find examples and timing of several morning and evening routines, the evidence-based best practices for wakeful days and restful nights. So head over to wellrestedmd.com day to see these best practices in action. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave a review and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information, including the option to sign up for email updates. Thanks for listening.